It has been over a decade since I enrolled in seminary at La Sierra University in Riverside, California. Now, I feel very fortunate. I had a wonderful education at La Sierra University. It was made wonderful by teachers, and I just love these teachers so much. One teacher that I love is a man named Dr. John Webster, who's, I remember taking the first class I took from him during the summer of 2009. And during that summer, I enrolled in the class RELT 695, Topics in Theological Studies. I signed up for this class purely because it fit in my schedule, having no idea what I was getting into. And I arrived in this class, and what you need to know about summer classes at La Sierra Seminary is that they are not normal classes that happen over 10 weeks. No, they are two-week intensives where each day of class is four hours, and each day of class also represents one week of an academic quarter. So there are 40 hours in this class together, and we do that over 10 school days. So we sat down the first day, and Dr. Webster said, pull out your Bibles. In this class, we are going to go through the Gospel of Mark, and this class will end by you answering a question. What is the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark? Now, I kind of looked around at the other students at that point because Mark is not a very long book. In fact, if you ask me to read the Gospel of Mark right now, I think I could read it in under an hour. And so I thought to myself, this class will be done by 10 o'clock on Monday. This will not be a very long class. And so I thought, if this is the only point, this class will be over so quickly, Dr. Webster is mailing it in, and I'm kind of fine with it, right? But then we started going through the book of Mark. And I have to tell you, we stopped after every sentence. And he talked about the value of every sentence as if every sentence was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. We were near the end and we were like, oh my goodness, we cannot finish this in two weeks going at four hours a day. We're going to need more time. And he just sped up and said, we're just going to read through this as fast as possible because we're not going to make it to the end. Now, when you think about that, if I could normally read this book in one hour, and the fact that we had 40 hours and we didn't finish in time, it's really remarkable because Dr. Webster taught me how to read the Bible slowly. And I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but what's interesting about podcasts these days is you can vary the speed. You can have it go at 1.25 speed or 1.5 speed. Or does anybody here have it at two times speed? You all are crazy. I'm sure you enjoyed the chai this morning. <laughs> this was at 140th speed. And it was that slow. And while that may sound agonizing to you, it is very influential. This has been very influential in the way that I study the Bible. And I want to share this technique with you over a verse that Juliana, or passage that Juliana just read, to show you how much is buried in these words that we often just gloss over. We read in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested. Okay, let's stop right here. Who is John? Does anyone know who John is this morning? John the Baptist. You all got that one correct. Very good. None of you got it wrong because you didn't say anything. I know your game. John is John the Baptist, who is Jesus's cousin. Now, it's not only Jesus's cousin, but Jesus also viewed John as a spiritual mentor because Jesus was baptized by John. So not only is John a beloved family member of Jesus, but Jesus also looked at John as a older brother, someone he could look up to and model his life after. Now, what we so often forget when we read the text is that Jesus was human. 
And so immediately, within one half of a sentence, we have to pause and say, wait, 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 what is Jesus feeling here? He's probably feeling betrayal from his government. He's probably feeling heartache for his cousin being locked away in prison. He's probably feeling fear because he knows he's going to say a lot of the same things John was saying, and he realizes that he might be arrested next. So Jesus is feeling all of these things in this story that we have barely gotten into. We then read that Jesus went back to Galilee. Now, Galilee was a region in modern-day Israel. And if you want to know where Galilee is, this is Jerusalem, the most famous city in Israel. Um, Galilee was this area to the west of the Sea of Galilee, the northern body of water in Israel. Now, we read that Jesus left Nazareth, and Nazareth was this tiny little village that was found in a corner of Galilee. And we read that he went from Nazareth up to Capernaum. And Capernaum is another tiny little village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's here that we should ask a question. Why would Jesus move to Capernaum? Why would he go from Nazareth, a town that nobody knows about, to Capernaum, a town that nobody knows about? Well, the text doesn't say the answer, but I have this sense that when I imagine this story, what makes the most sense to me is that down here in Jerusalem, there is the religious body, which is found in the temple, right next to the state, which is the palace, which is right here. In other words, there was no separation of church and state back in Jesus' day for Jesus' context. Now, this is important because the people who arrested John were the religious folks with the power and the authority of the state. So when we ask the question, why would Jesus move to Capernaum? For me, the answer that I imagine to give or that I give to make my, this story make sense is that Jesus was trying to get a little further away from Jerusalem so that he could do the work that he needed to do. Now, Capernaum is a place where you can travel to today. And I have to tell you, it's a bit of a wild experience. Because when you walk into Capernaum, they want you to know that you are about to enter a holy place. After all, we believe that Jesus lived in this town. Now, there is a sign at the entrance to Capernaum that says, this is a holy place, therefore you have to behave by some certain rules. And they give four rules to mark this as a holy place. And I have to tell you, I love these four rules. The first rule is no dogs. <laughs> Apparently, the people of Capernaum are cat people. They're like, no dogs allowed in the holy place. This is a place that we have to mark as separate. The second one is no smoking. The third is no sniper rifles, apparently. And the fourth is absolutely no shorts or tank tops. Now, this results in some rather funny pictures because it's very hot in Capernaum, particularly when I went in July, and I was going around with two very dignified theologians named Dr. Richard Rice and Dr. Bailey Gillespie, and they forgot their pants. So they wore shorts, and they were like, no, no, you can't enter this holy place. So they handed them the baggiest scrub pants possible. And these are very smart people who had to walk around Capernaum dressed like this. So we went in Capernaum. It was great. It's, it's a beautiful city, beautiful ruin. It's very well preserved. There's even the synagogue that is referenced in several of the stories of Jesus that are told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the majority of Capernaum looks like this today. You can see the outlines of houses. It was just this tiny little village. And if you go to Capernaum, you will be shocked at how small this village is, and it somehow contained who Christians believe to be the Son of God. So when we read Jesus left Nazareth and settled in Capernaum, I hope you can get your head around what Capernaum is, a tiny little fishing village 
on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we read, a lakeside town near the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, who or what are Zebulun and Naphtali? To get the answer to that question, you have to go back 1,700 years before Jesus moved to Capernaum, back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis to read a story about a man named Jacob who later changed his name to Israel and had 12 sons. Now, these 12 sons were born by four different women, and of these 12 sons, they all are known as the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Two of those sons are named Zebulun and Naphtali. And these two sons were both given land, or their descendants were given land, later on in multiple books of the Bible. That land was found to the east or the west of the Sea of Galilee and to the north. And so when, when Matthew writes about this story, he writes, Jesus left Nazareth and settled in Capernaum, a lakeside town near the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why does Matthew refer to Capernaum in this strange way? Because if I was describing Capernaum, I would say, look, it's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. That's what you need to know. But Matthew chooses a much bigger roundabout way that references things that are 1,700 years old for a very specific reason. He does this, and it's revealed why in the next verse, when we read, in this way, the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled, which raises the question, who or what is Isaiah? About 700 years before Jesus moved to Capernaum, or 1,000 years after the life of Israel and his 12 sons, there is a story that you have to be aware of to understand why this all matters. About the year 745 BCE, there was a tiny little nation known as Judah. The capital city was Jerusalem. Judah was the nation of David. And it was living here as a tiny nation in 745 BCE. Now, there were two neighbors to the north, Israel and Syria. Those were both nations that were tiny like Judah. Israel and Judah used to be one nation. They split because of a man named Rehoboam. It's a fascinating story for another time. Now, these three tiny nations were living in the shadow of an empire known as Assyria. And in 745 BCE, they were all kind of living in tense harmony until a man named Tilgath-Pilassar III was crowned emperor of Assyria. This made the people of Israel, Syria, and Judah very nervous. So nervous, in fact, that Israel and Syria went to Judah and said, hey, we're tiny nations. There's three of us. What if we allied, pooled our resources, and said, we will fight together against Assyria? Judah heard this offer from the two tiny nations of Israel and Syria and said, mm, I don't think we're going to win. We're going to pass. Now, this pass on the alliance made Israel and Syria very angry. So angry, in fact, that Israel and Syria launched an attack on Judah and said, you know what, Judah? If you're not for us, you're against us, this is the end. Now, Judah was overmatched. After all, it was two against one, right? So what do you think Judah did? They yelled to help from Assyria. Yeah, you guys know that one. It's like uh, military 101, be friends with the big guys, right? So Judah yelled to help from Assyria. They literally made a deal with the devil and said like, hey, if you help us, we'll become part of your nation. And so Assyria did. Assyria in 722 wiped out Israel and Syria, and Judah became a vassal of Assyria. Now, in 722, a question that we have to ask is, what are the people of Judah feeling in this moment? They're feeling fear, right? 
They're worried about their future. They're not sure they're going to survive. Yes, they're paying taxes to Assyria, but they just watched Israel get wiped out by them. So there's no guarantee that Assyria will stay loyal to them as people, and they are feeling like they are on the brink of their people's existence. Into that fear, a prophet named Isaiah begins to speak to the king of Judah. And he speaks specifically to the king of Judah in this tense time, in this specific context. He says to the king, but there will be no more gloom for the land that was in anguish. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Well, what land was the land of Zebulun and Naphtali? It's right here, which is where Syria and Israel were. And so what Isaiah has to say to the king of Judah is he's like, look, there will be no more gloom for that land where there's a ton of gloom right now. In other words, Isaiah wants the people of Judah to have hope when they are feeling fearful and they are afraid of what might happen tomorrow. He goes on to write, but in the future, God will bring glory to this road to the sea, this land beyond the Jordan, this Galilee of the nations, the people walking in darkness. Who is that? It's the survivors of the people of Syria and Israel. It's the survivors of the people of Judah. Anyone who is living in the shadow of the Assyrian Empire is living in darkness. So he says, the people walking in darkness are seeing a brilliant light upon those who dwell in the land of deep shadows. Light is shining. And so Isaiah's prophecy is one of hope written to people who are terrified of a larger empire conquering them at any moment. Matthew understands this, and he taps into it. But he also doesn't just stop there. He taps into something that's even older than Isaiah by referencing Naphtali and Zebulun, which raises that question again. Why is Matthew referencing two random sons of Israel and also quoting a prophet from centuries ago writing about extinct empires when he tells us the story of Jesus simply moving to Capernaum, which no one has ever heard of? The reason Matthew does this is because Matthew's primary audience is people of Jewish descent. And Matthew references these towering figures of faith in an effort to say, hey, I want you to see something here. I want you to say, this is my story. Matthew wants his readers to see their story in the story of Jesus. Which raises a question that every Christian must ask, how do I see my story in the story of Jesus? Because if Matthew wrote to us, he would not write us a letter that said, hey, you know, Jesus moved the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. None of us would know what that means, right? Instead, he would say, hey, Jesus moved to a place called Capernaum. If you don't know where it is, use Google Maps. And you may say, he would never say that, to which I would say, yes, he would, because he writes to people in their context and writes in a way that they would understand. And we all understand the power and the need of Google, right? We all understand how much easier it is to understand where places are by just typing it into a blank space. So how do you see yourself in the story of Jesus? It's important for you to insert this, yourself into this story. This gospel is participatory. It's not for observers. It's for you to see your life in the story of Jesus. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing by referencing the land of Galilee, Zebulun, Naphtali, Isaiah, Capernaum. These are places you know. And he has this sense that when Jesus moves from a no-name village to another no-name village, this is a big deal. 
So big, in fact, it reminds him of the words of Isaiah, and he feels like it is a promise kept for centuries by God. He quotes then Isaiah by saying, Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea on the far side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who lived in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So what prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled here? Christians today like to minimize this and say, well, he's proving that Jesus is the one true son of God, so you should believe in him because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. That is a flattening of what is actually happening here. This is a much bigger prophecy that is happening. The prophecy that Isaiah says is a bold, courageous prophecy given to people who are feeling anything but bold and courageous. The prophecy that's being fulfilled is that those who walk through darkness will see a brilliant light. It is a promise that Isaiah believes strongly because he believes in God. So when we ask this question, we asked the question earlier, who was living in darkness before? The answer was, well, the people of Judah, the, people, the survivors from Syria and Israel. But who's living in darkness in this story? Well, Jesus for one, right? Jesus is really afraid because John has been arrested. Not only that, but there's other people living in darkness in the story. The people of Capernaum. They're living in the shadow of a different empire, the Roman Empire. Not only that, but I've seen estimates for how much the people of Capernaum were being taxed during Jesus' day and age. And the most conservative estimates is that the people of Capernaum were being taxed 70% of their income by the Roman Empire, and the most aggressive estimates are that it was 90% of their income. Think about that when April 15 rolls around, when you think, oh, this is a lot of money. It could be worse. It could be a lot worse. So who's living in darkness? The people of Capernaum. Jesus. Wait, isn't everyone living in darkness? This is not good news for just one tiny village. This is good news for everyone. And Jesus understood that because from that time on, Matthew writes, Jesus began proclaiming the message, change your hearts, change your minds, and for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now remember, Jesus just rolled into town a few days ago before he started saying all this stuff, right? I can't imagine being someone in Capernaum, hearing this guy from Nazareth walk in and say, hey everyone, heaven is very close to here. I picture the people of Capernaum saying, uh, Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is here? In Capernaum? How long have you been here? Nothing happens in Capernaum. We still have taxes. My neighbor Gary is sick. We are in debt. We have nothing to look forward to other than going out on our boat and fishing, knowing that all the money we make will go somewhere else. Heaven is here? Get out of here. And yet Jesus went to this no-name spot on the map and said, nope, it's real close to here. This is where heaven is. Now, everyone expected him to go to Jerusalem and say, oh, yeah, see the temple? Heaven's very close to there. But he went to Capernaum, which you probably hadn't heard of before just a few minutes ago. And Jesus said, oh, heaven's in Capernaum, which is good news for all of us because if heaven's in Capernaum, it also probably means that heaven is in Redlands, right? Not just Redlands. Pick a random place like Puyallup, Washington. That place, heaven, is just as present there as Redlands, California. 
And when you think about that, you can say to yourself, well, I mean, that sounds nice, but it's not like the real heaven, Craig. I mean, the real heaven, there's no more death, no more suffering. There's no more taxes, right? There's none of that. That's not like, this is, the, this is like the beta version of heaven, right? And we say that because we have this idea that heaven begins when suffering ends. This is prevalent throughout Christianity today, that once suffering closes, once suffering is done, then we'll experience the real heaven. And this stuff, as good as it possibly can be, is kind of like a toned-down version at best of what heaven actually is. Well, I want you to know that I have believed this most of my life. But there are stories in the Bible that I was not introduced to that really challenge this notion. One is about 20 years after Jesus moved to Capernaum. This is a story about a man named Paul the Apostle, Paul who set up a lot of churches around the Mediterranean Sea. His first real success in his ministry was at a place called Corinth in Greece, which is where the Yellow Star is. He set up that church, he stayed there for 18 months, and then he departed to go set up more churches like a church in Ephesus. Now our best guess is that Paul was in Ephesus when he received word from the Corinthian church that things weren't going well. That he had set up this church, and while he was the pastor, everything was good. But the moment he left, there was a lot of fighting happening between them. And the big fight that was happening in Paul's absence was that he heard that people were starting to brag about who they got baptized by. Like somebody said, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I was baptized by Paul. And they would argue about which one was holier because they had been baptized by one apostle and not the other. Paul hears about all this, and he sits down to write 1 Corinthians, what would eventually become 1 Corinthians, and he writes them, and this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. He writes, I have been informed, my sisters and brothers, by certain members of Chloe's household, that you are quarreling among yourselves. Paul is about to put some people in their place. He says, what I mean is one of you is saying, I belong to Paul. Another, I belong to Apollos. Still another, I belong to Peter. Still another, I belong to Christ. What? Has Christ been divided into parts? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? No. Was it in Paul's name that you were baptized? No. And then he says something that pastors today cannot say at all, even though it's in the Bible. Frankly, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. That's wild. He said that so that none of you can say you were baptized in my name. The point is, Christ didn't send me to baptize people but to preach the gospel, not with human rhetoric, however, lest the cross of Christ be rendered void of its meaning. In other words, for Paul, the good news of Jesus is wrapped up in the cross. And while most people hear the cross today and they think, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins, that's not necessarily what it is for Paul. He writes, for the message of the cross is complete absurdity to those who are headed for ruin. And when we say that Jesus died for our sins, there's a bit of a method to the madness, right? It sounds like it's all part of God's plan. But here's Paul saying, no, no, no. It's absurd. This whole cross message is absurd. Unless you've been inside it and you can see that to those of us who are experiencing salvation, the cross is the power of God. And when you think about the cross, I have to tell you, Christians have to reclaim the absurdity of the cross. Because think about what this is. This represents all the worst that life has to offer, betrayal, doubt, pain, torture, death, 
all of those things are wrapped up right here, and it's wrapped right into the cross. And where is God in this story? Right on the cross, living through all of it. And if we truly believe that heaven is the presence of God, and we have this idea that heaven begins when suffering ends, the absurdity of the cross is that heaven is found when we suffer, not when suffering ends. And when you think about what that means, it starts to have some staggering implications. Now, this doesn't mean you go looking for suffering, right? You don't say like, oh, man, I really want my life to be harder. I'm going to go like just eat dirt. I don't know. There's nothing like that, right? But when you think about what this is saying, I think it's tapping into a deeper truth that Matthew understood, which is those who will walk in the darkness will also see a brilliant light. And all of a sudden, the cross reminds us that you can't really separate light from darkness. They're more like dance partners that coexist side by side. This is caught brilliantly in one of my favorite songs that's ever been written by a man named Ryan O'Neill. In 2014, he released a triple album. Yes, a triple album. What did you do with yourself this morning? And in this triple album called Atlas, he writes a song called Uneven Odds. And I have to tell you, I get emotional every time I hear this song because Ryan O'Neill imagines that he is a guardian for a child. And in this imaginary story, he imagines that this child's parents have passed away due to illness. And so he imagines himself as he's writing this song, trying to explain to this child who's experienced some of the worst suffering life has to offer, how this child could possibly find love, beauty, happiness, joy in the midst of all this death. And it's a song that moves me every time, and just when I think it can't get any better, it closes with the line, it coalesces into this beautiful line of poetry, which is, you're much too young now, so I'll write these words down. Darkness exists to make light truly count. Those who have seen the most terrible darkness often appreciate the beauty of light the most. I have to pause when I say these words because I feel such an intense reverence for what I'm saying. I know you as a congregation, and I know a lot of the suffering you've faced, and I know how hard it is to face it. And this is not said to justify the ends. This is not to say, like, well, you have to suffer in order to enjoy life. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is, no matter how much you have suffered, God is still with you. No matter what darkness you are in, nothing is beyond the redemption of God. No matter what it is that you go through, your suffering, the worst thing that happened to you, will not define you for the rest of your life. And the people who have suffered the most often become the people who understand love the best. Now, there is, of course, the choice of bitterness, of anger, of harboring resentment. There is also the necessity of grief, of lament, of anger, of solidarity. Those are necessary parts of the steps. This is not meant to gloss over things to make you feel good about the real suffering that you and I encounter on a daily basis. This is the story of a promise given to us by God through prophets that no matter how dark it gets, that darkness can be used for something good eventually.
My friends, this is good news. And to give you an example of what this means, I want you to imagine your entire life. And think about that moment I asked you to think about from the beginning of this service. When was the moment in your life you questioned God's absence the most or God's presence the most, when you thought God doesn't exist because this happened? We often look at that and think to ourselves, okay, that's an error, that's a glitch. I'll just try to gloss over that. I'll ask God about it later when we get to the real heaven. I'm sure I'll get an explanation then. No, 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 stop. Imagine your whole life. The beautiful parts and the difficult parts. The cross reminds us that all of it is done in God's presence. That every last part of it is in the presence of God. And there was never a moment you were separated from God, even though it felt like it. Because part of living and growing in spiritual maturity is looking at suffering as part of life and still feeling love toward life in some way, shape, or form. Can you love your entire life? If you thought to yourself, man, if I could just change that one thing about my life, then yes, life would be so much better. The cross says, no, 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 your whole life, your life. It's okay if you've tried to change it and you can't change it at all to just love the whole thing anyways because it's a gift from God. One of my great mentors, a man named Dr. Fritz Guy, who has a lot of experience in his life, has told me that the greatest indicator of spiritual maturity is not the ability to quote Bible verses or to go to church consistently. The greatest indicator of spiritual maturity is gratitude. Can you be grateful for your entire life, even with that one part you would change tomorrow if you could? Because at some point you have to look at it and say, it's part of my life, it's part of my story. And after you've grieved and lamented and shared healthfully how to process those things, you can start to ask yourself, can this help me become a more loving person? Can this help me appreciate life more? Can life be more beautiful because of this, not because I wish it was gone? And if you can make peace with that and accept that heaven is possible even in the face of suffering, well, then you at that point are being transported across the globe thousands of years ago to a little village that nobody knew about called Capernaum and this random peasant walking through saying, guys, heaven's right here, here in Capernaum. And I imagine the first person coming up to him, coming up to Jesus and saying like, really, Capernaum, here in Capernaum? Are you serious? You think heaven's here? Let me tell you about all the problems in Capernaum. They start listing things off. And I imagine Jesus listening to the first three and then being like, well, this person likes to complain. And then, rather than responding, Jesus just turns toward the Sea of Galilee, which is right there next to Capernaum, and saying like, look at this. And as all those complaints keep going, Jesus would say, yeah, but this. The great Toni Morrison once wrote these words in her novel Tar Baby. She said, at some point, at some point in life, the world's beauty becomes enough. You don't need to photograph the world's beauty. You don't need to paint the world's beauty. You don't even have to remember the world's beauty. It is simply enough. 
No record of it needs to be kept. And you don't need someone to share it with or tell it to. When that happens, that letting go, you let go because you can. The world will always be there. While you sleep, the world will be there. When you wake, the world will be there as well. So you can sleep, and there is reason to wake. A dead hydrangea is as intricate and lovely as one in bloom. Bleak sky is as seductive as sunshine. Miniature orange trees without blossom or fruit are not defective. They are simply that. So the windows of the greenhouse can be opened, and you can let the weather in. The latch on the door can be left unhooked, the muslin removed. For the soldier ants are beautiful too, and whatever they do will be part of it. My friends, may you trust the prophecy of Isaiah. May you trust the prophecy of Jesus. And trust that no matter what darkness you have encountered in your life, you will experience light at some point, and you will appreciate it more because of it. May you look at all of your life and recognize that God is present in all of it, especially those parts when it felt like God was completely absent. And may you be able to wrap your arms around the whole thing one day, even if it can't be today, but one day you may look at your entire life and look at it and feel nothing but gratitude. My wish for you this morning is that you may love your life, all of your life, and may you see and embrace the kingdom of heaven right here and right now. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.